This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest who joined me via Skype is Hermione Hobie, author of the novel Neon and Daylight. Hobie grew up in South London and moved to Brooklyn in 2010. She writes about culture for The Guardian, The New Yorker, and The New York Times, among other publications. Her novel, Neon and Daylight, tells the story of Kate, a young English woman who comes to New York for an adventure and to figure out her future. It is the summer of 2012, just before Hurricane Sandy hits, and Kate meets two strangers, Inez and Bill, a daughter and father, who transform her experience. We began the discussion with Hobie explaining what inspired the story. I think a, a large part of it came just from my own intoxication with New York. I think people tend to write about the things or the questions that they can't really answer. So I guess I just had a, a sort of um, web of questions in my mind or maybe heart. I don't know quite where they were located. And one of those was, what is it about New York? Which, you know, when I say it out loud, sounds kind of corny. Um, and then there were, there were various others. You know, what what is it to try and become yourself? What are the sort of ramifications of extreme female beauty? Inez is a sort of unignorably physically beautiful person. You know, what does that do in the world? And then I was thinking a lot, too, about desire and what the dynamics might be between a young woman and an older man and what sort of currencies might be at play um, between all three of those people. So those, I think, were, were some of the questions that were sort of generating stuff as I tried to write. So it begins with Kate, and she is coming to New York. She is taking a break from her overly possessive, perhaps boring boyfriend. And she's encouraged by her mother's uh, one-time best friend to just come and have an adventure, as if in some way Kate saying to Kate, you haven't really lived, and you certainly haven't lived until you've come to New York. So come, stay in my apartment, I'll be gone. So let's talk a little bit about Kate and this idea of her leaving um, England to come to New York, which probably is not foreign to you. Yes, you're absolutely right that I did indeed move to New York as a young woman. Um, I mean, I moved and, and felt a, you know, a real joy and a real relief and a real sense of freedom. And I was lucky enough to have several dear friends already in New York. So I felt in no way adrift. I actually felt like just a huge sense of possibility. And it was that sense that allowed me to write. I think if I'd stayed in London, I would not, well, I would have, I don't know, it's hypothetical, but I, part of me thinks so I wouldn't have been able to write anything. But I think there is just this quality of being in one's 20s. It's just a sort of provisional selfhood and I think the fact that, you know, she's staying in someone else's apartment and just kind of trying on identities. It, it, I mean, that was definitely my, if not literally, my um, my sort of more general experience of, of being in my 20s of how do you find out who you are and what you should be doing and where you're meant to be going. So, yeah, Kate is, is pretty lost. Um, 
but I think you know in in various ways all three of the characters are lost being lost is uh unfortunately not a state peculiar to one's 20s you know it can happen anytime yeah, it's interesting because you said you were, you know, one of the things that you were thinking about when you wrote this is this sort of idea of of maybe finding yourself and and your identity. And it's mm. it's I think it's interesting because at least in this story, it requires other people, if that makes sense. Like Kate comes oh, yeah. and, and she meets yeah. these other people. And is that sort of a prerequisite of figuring yourself out? Like, do you need to bounce yourself off of other people? Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the people I know have made me. That's, I think, for me at least, that is how selfhood accretes, you know. It's, it's through other people and borrowing from other people and hopefully wittingly lending to other people too. Um, but, yeah, we, you know, we are different people with everyone we meet and, you know, that when someone says that, it almost sounds like, you know, there's a kind of fakeness or a lack of authenticity. And I, I just celebrate that. I mean, I think it's it's beautiful that every relationship in our lives is a slightly different version of ourselves. And yeah, we, we sort of make each other. Nothing exists in a vacuum. And I think that's that's sort of analogous to literature itself. You know, everything is is borrowed and there should be no anxiety of influence you know it's um it's a beautiful thing that the writers make themselves from other writers um i really really rejoice in that you're listening to first draft a dialogue on writing produced at aspen public radio i'm missy rapkin my guest who joined me via skype is hermione hobie author of the novel neon in daylight so Kate, Kate is young. She's she's in her mid twenties, and when she comes yeah. over, she's in the park, and there's this beautiful girl, Inez, and Inez actually turns to Kate and says, "Are you Kate?" And it turned out that she was the wrong Kate, and yeah. uh, Inez is se- selling Adderall, and she's this beautiful girl finishing high school, kind of. Um, experimenting with uh, her sexuality, just kind of going with the flow and having fun and just sort of being free in the world as you can be at that age with a dad right. who, who isn't super overprotective of her. And Absolutely. so her and Kate befriend each other. And Kate is, you know, much more boring, I think, <laughs> without yeah. Inez. So can you talk about the creation of the, of Inez and, and their friendship? I wonder if, if even friendship isn't perhaps the quite, quite the right word. It's I sort of feel like they perhaps never get to friendship and that what is happening between them is this, this like very deep fascination. And I think it's, you know, they are such strange creatures to each other, but very compelling. So Kate, who is paralytically self-conscious, is very drawn to this young woman who seems, well, is, I think, completely heedless, completely lacking in self-consciousness, has not questioned her her place in the world or doesn't really question anything. Um, And that's sort of alarming to Kate, but also deeply seductive. And then, you know, Inez is just drawn to this uh, this woman who's, who is so different from her and who also is British and just very curious. Um, and I think just generally I'm interested, you know, I mean, as a person, I 
believe deeply, hopelessly in, um, you know, love in all its forms and the, the, you know, friendship and how deeply sincere and salutary all those things can be. But I think as a writer, I'm much more interested in more ambiguous relationships in which fascination might also come with an element of scorn or contempt um, and in which desire and revulsion are, are mixed up with each other. Um, I mean, I think the desire and the revulsion probably applies more to Bill and Kate's relationship, but I think it's there too with Inez and Kate. They're fascinated by each other, but there are parts of each other that they just find, you know, sort of unthinkable. So with Inez, you know, you you also have her, you know, you show scenes with her and Bill, her father, and he is maybe like a has-been literary star. He wrote one book that was made into a movie that still gets accolades, but he seems a little bit washed up and he recognizes that himself, that, you know, he doesn't score the women as easily. He is living on this old fame and he's also trying to raise this precocious daughter. He's divorced. And um, you have some beautiful scenes with him uh, trying to accept Inez when a girl walks out of her room. He's trying to be hip to the fact that maybe she likes women now and tries to, right, right. you know, be uh, like at a remove, but also so worried about her. Um, what, yes. what interested you in writing about this relationship? I guess one thing that interested me was this idea that someone of Bill's generation could have come of age at a time um, when sexual politics seemed very progressive and he could have built his identity around a sense of being progressive and open. And yet we have, we, we're continuing to experience like, you know, a, a huge disruptive and really great challenging of orthodoxies, you know, and there is so, I mean, there's just a sort of wealth of vocabulary um, now that didn't even exist when Bill was in his 20s. So how a, a guy who considers himself, as you say, very sort of hip to things might tackle that was interesting to me. And I guess that played into a sense of New York being a place that is endlessly revising itself. It's always new. I mean, not to be too corny, but, you know, the, the new of New York is always new. Um, so Bill's New York is no longer, I mean, it's, it's sort of in the shadows. It's been overwritten. So how a father and daughter might throw just those different worlds into light was interesting to me. And also just in terms of sort of sexual politics, there was that sort of much derided, ubiquitous phrase sort of on Twitter when sanctimonious um, male politicians would say as the father of daughters, which, yeah, I, I found really exasperating. It's like just, you know do you need to have a daughter to, to have any empathy for young women? You know, it's like, is that what it takes for you to recognize young female humanity? Um, but I, I guess just a father-daughter relationship was was interesting to me. I mean, Bill, Bill came to me, Bill was the first character that came to me and he was the most immediate and felt the most fluent to write. Um, and in one way that, that seems not to make any sense because he's probably the character of the three with whom I you know, share the least biographical information. He's a guy for one thing. And, you know, he's of a different generation to me. But I think that might also be the reason why he felt uh, such a 
a pleasure to write. I, I felt like I didn't have to construct him. He was just there. And in the, the two women actually were more constructed in part. I mean, there comes a point where even if you've, you've made a sort of Frankenstein, you know, of, of bits of other people and you've sort of assembled it that way, there does come a point where the character then takes on their own life and, and supersedes whatever their sort of originators may have been. So I know that, that Kate and Inez were sort of drawn from real people I've known, but it's very easy for me to forget that because I've spent more time with them as characters than, you know, more time thinking about whatever those sort of scraps were that I, I drew from. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Hermione Hobie, author of the novel Neon in Daylight. So Kate meets Bill and they start to have this romance. And in the background is George, her boyfriend, who she Skypes with every now and then and who just kind of makes her uncomfortable. So what did you want? sort of a bill to bring out in Kate that um, you could explore on the page and, and vice versa? Sure. Well, first, I I don't even know if romance is the right word. <laughs> I mean, they, they become involved with each other and there are perhaps elements of romance, but, you know, like it, it's not necessarily romantic. Um, it's more, I hope it's more confusing than that. Um, I guess, you know, Kate is shocking herself um and there is an element there's an element of that you know this is very out of character for her um she's been a well still is a sort of you know self-effacing somewhat timid person so for her to be involved in this older guy who has some kind of cultural cachet albeit a faded one is disruptive and i think again that you know in a general sense that that might be what being female and in one's 20s is sort of about, you know, doing things that are out of character, whatever character might be, to try and find out who you are. I guess I was working on this sense that, you know, there can be these strange periods of one's life, which is sort of outside one's life in the larger sense, where you meet people who are hugely important to you and who do sort of change your life. Then you might never see them again. And you might, you know, I did have this idea of all three of them in I don't know, 10 or 20 years time, looking back and being like, oh my God, yeah, I remember that. Like whatever happened to her or him or, and just a sort of uh, bewilderment and disorientation. Um, so I, I guess I was, I was thinking about that too, um, how people can be both very important, but, but temporary. And, and the, the storm was building, you know, you got this sense of heat and you mentioned the movie Do the Right Thing, which is also takes place in New York as the heat is just building and the tension mm. and the intensity of it. Why was this the time period you wanted and how did you work on building that tension as you move through the days of these characters? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, I should say, I should sort of, fess up first of all and say that for many years so I began writing the book in 2010 I mean I wouldn't have called it a book at that point I just knew I was you know I was kind of grasping and trying to write stuff and I didn't know what it was so having begun it in 2010 I just had this sense of you know quote contemporary whatever that meant so there did come a point in the writing of it where you know I was unwittingly writing towards a future 
And then at some point, you know, post 2012, I was writing to a past. For a long time, I I was resistant to it being legibly 2012, because I think one of, you know, the great things about fiction is, is its ambivalence and that a reader comes to it and it's a it's a mutual construction. And if you give too many details, it's um it's almost sort of stymieing to that space of that sort of marshy space of imagining and sort of magic. But my editor very wisely said, no, you <laughs> he's uh he's British and he said, you know, you're a British writer writing about New York and if you get the details wrong about a year in New York, a year in New York, then, um, you know, New Yorkers are going to savage you. So, so I did then sort of commit to it being 2012. Um, but I do, I did still sort of hold on to the idea that, well, it could be Hurricane Irene, or it could be Sandy, or it could be a completely fictional storm, because I like that, you know, that there is such a richness to me in a kind of a, a multiplicity of, of possible meanings and readings. I've always been, you know, sort of delirious in New York summers. So the, the novel came out in January and one friend said to me, this is completely appropriate. It's coming out in January because something happens um, with, with heavy snow and blizzards and snow days that's very similar to the thing that happens with the intense heat of a New York summer. And it's a kind of out of one's life quality, kind of wildness, a kind of the rules don't apply, um, you know, the, the usual uh, modes of behavior are kind of suspended and, and everything's just a little crazy. Um, so I, I just found the idea of that incredible heat quite exciting. Um, and I also just love New York in the summer. So to spend time in that state was very appealing to me. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Hermione Hobie, author of the novel Neon in Daylight. Tell me about the title. So for a long time, the the book was just, you know, it was a, a languishing Google Doc. Um, I didn't tell many people I was trying to write a novel. It seemed a very embarrassing thing. And for years and years, it was just this Google Doc called Novel, full stop, which is, you know, sort of pathetic. And then I was reading Frank O'Hara's lunch poems, which have this wonderful incidental quality and a real humility to them. They were, as, as you and your listeners probably know, written on his lunch hour. And uh, the, the phrase neon in daylight is from a poem called A Step Away From Them. And those three words just hit me and you know seemed forgive the pun luminous and I realized that they were exactly what I was trying to do in this book um they were sort of the neon and the daylight were kind of the two forces because one of the questions which I failed to uh, remember when I was talking about you know the various questions that drive someone to write a book one of those questions was just about intoxication and you know, what, what is true? If we have an extraordinary experience on drugs, does that make it less true than, I don't know, an extraordinary experience achieved through meditation or reading? Um, and what is it to be intoxicated in the world? And then what is it to be sober? And is there a right 
you know, in quotation marks, way to live. Um, so the neon for me was sort of seemed to represent everything that was flashy and glamorous and thrilling about the city and also about being in one's 20s and experimenting with drugs and alcohol and sex. And then the daylight was, you know, everything that is sobering and natural and less immediately persuasive. And, you know, I think both are sort of valid forms of illumination so the idea that you know you could look at a neon sign in the daylight and see it slightly displaced from the state it was intended for but nonetheless quite beautiful that was was hugely resonant to me um it also just felt really nice to title a novel after frank o'hara who is was but you know is <laughs> so much a poet of new york yeah it's interesting too because when you think about sort of intoxication it happens in many forms you know it does happen mm. with drugs but you you even wrote um on page uh, 98 when you're you're talking about love you're talking about uh bill had was trying to help a, a student who was also friends with his daughter and it said, it's never love as soon as you feel the next love. Because isn't that a prerequisite of the condition? That you tell yourself everything that came before wasn't really it. Yeah, yeah, as you're reading that, I'm remembering that it was my my wonderful, wise friend, Emily, who I think, you know, actually said that to me years ago. So <laughs> thank you, Emily. It's so often the case that, you know, you write these things and and then you were like, oh, yeah, wait, that, that comes from that. Yeah, love, love too, as you, as you implied, is, is a, another form of intoxication. And, you know, I've, I've sort of struggled with the, the phenomenological question of love. Like so much of our culture enshrines it as an absolute. But I think because love, you know, arises between two selves and because as we were talking about, you know, selfhood is so changeable and so contingent. That must make love changeable and contingent too, uh, which isn't to say it can't be completely overwhelming. And I think it's important, you know, to sort of honour one's past loves, even though, as, you know, Bill is sort of thinking here, that it's very easy to dismiss them once you're in the next sort of state and just to sort of write that off as, you know, youthful folly. But again, it's like, you know, it's all neon and daylight mixed in. It's, it's both. There isn't a truth to it, really. The only truth is sort of its, um, its ambiguity, its changeability. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Hermione Hobie, author of the novel Neon and Daylight. One of the things this novel moves towards is this final party there's a friend mm. of Bill's, his name is Casey, and he's 88, and he's very flamboyant, he's gay, he's, he seems to be like a, a, a don of some kind, like he, he sort of uh, attracts people to him, he, he seems like a figure that you would read about in historic New York, whether he was absolutely I don't know yeah. if he was like a Jack Kerouac type or, or a Truman Capote type. But talk about who Casey is and and sure, yeah. Um, 
Casey is a Warhol factory superstar. Yeah, he's he's the sort of person that probably would have been written about in the Village Voice in like the 80s. Um, and, you know, it's a kind of breed that, that is literally dying out. Um, but it was interesting to me that, you know, a frail, white-haired guy in his 80s could be, you know, this sort of fabulousness whose whole identity was created on being, you know, outrageously countercultural and, you know, fashionable and subversive um, and just what it might mean to become old and frail when your sense of yourself was, uh, as all the above, as subversive, countercultural, irreverent. So, again, I think Casey, there's an, you know, he's, he's kind of living old New York. And why did you want to include a character like this, you know, as part of the crescendo and in, in, in the story? Part of it was, again, this sense of New York being almost brutally, it's a city of endless reinvention. I moved in 2010 and... I think around 2011 or 12, I found this um, this cafe I really liked in the Lower East Side. Uh, I did a great egg sandwich. And I remember the, the sort of double feeling I had when I, you know, turned the corner of that block to go to it and saw it was shut up and, you know, it didn't exist anymore. And part of it, obviously, was just disappointment and regret and sadness. And the other part was this curious sort of pride because I realized, oh, I'm this feels like a New Yorker experience. You know, I've now lived here long enough for one of my favorite places to have died and for the city to have moved on. And that was, you know, poignant, but, but curiously gratifying too. So I think I'm just very interested in that idea and particularly how, you know, Bill has had his moment um, and is now, as you say, kind of washed up. But Bill looking at Casey has that, you know, has that whole feeling kind of refracted because, yeah, Casey's moment was even longer ago. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Absolutely. I'd love to. So I'm going to read a little bit of Maggie Nelson. Somewhat embarrassingly, I, I googled uh, how to pronounce the title and I don't know whether because in French, it's bluet, blueberries, but I think people say bluets, so let's call it bluets. Um, so I'm just going to read a little from uh, bluets. At a job interview at a university, three men sitting across from me at a table. On my CV, it says that I am currently working on a book about the color blue. I have been saying this for years without writing a word. It is perhaps my way of making my life feel in progress rather than a sleeve of ash falling off a lit cigarette. One of the men asks, why blue? People ask me this question often. I never know how to respond. We don't get to choose what or whom we love, I want to say. We just don't get to choose. I've enjoyed telling people that I'm writing a book about blue without actually doing it. Mostly what happens in such cases is that people give you stories or leads or gifts, and then you can play with these things instead of with words. Over the past decade, I have been given blue inks, paintings, postcards, dyes, bracelets, rocks, precious stones, watercolors, pigments, paperweights, goblets, and candies. 
I had been introduced to a man who had one of his front teeth replaced with lapis lazuli solely because he loved the stone, and to another who worships blue so devoutly that he refuses to eat blue food and grows only blue and white flowers in his garden, which surrounds the blue ex-cathedral in which he lives. I have met a man who is the primary grower of organic indigo in the world, and another who sings Joni Mitchell's blue in heartbreaking drag, and another with the face of a derelict whose eyes literally leaked blue, and I called this one the Prince of Blue, which was, in fact, his name. I think of these people as my blue correspondents, whose job it is to send me blue reports from the field. But you talk of all this jauntily, when really it is more like you have been mortally ill, and these correspondents send pieces of blue news as if last-ditch hopes for a cure. And I'll stop there. Um, I just really love this idea of we don't get to choose what or whom we love. And it's something I, I think about in interviews like these when understandably, you know, people say, why did you write this or why did you choose this? And there is something about writing fiction or perhaps any kind of creative writing that feels beyond choice. Um, you know, if I if I had the choice, for example, I would not have made Bill a writer because that seems pretty hackneyed. You know, the world doesn't need another book about a writer. But he he just was there. I didn't get to choose. That's what he was. Um, so, yeah, I I love that idea. I also just love the idea of a sleeve of ash falling off a lit cigarette. Um, yeah, that speaks to me. Life can feel so much like that. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Hermione Hobie, author of the novel Neon in Daylight. Can you read something that you wrote? Maybe it changed a lot from the first draft or something that uh, you like how it came out? I don't know if I can say I like how it came out. I've yet to write anything <laughs> that I, you know, that I can fully like, um, but, but that will come, I hope. Um, but I'm just going to read the first, uh, first couple of paragraphs of the novel, because I guess these were the ones that I probably rewrote and rewrote more than any other bit of the book. And then I, I can perhaps talk a little about why. Impossible to remember what she thought it would be what she'd imagined it looking like now that she was here. The door was brown and Kate stood staring at it in a kind of paralysis, winded after three flights of stairs, a confusion of keys splayed heavy in her palm. Much like the new suitcase at her feet, these keys seemed to be an ugly prop, an aid to some kind of performance. The apartment was owned by her mother's one-time best friend, off on the post-divorce cliché of an around-the-world, Thailand, etc. trip. A week ago, Kate had stared at this stranger's face on a Skype screen, a face fussed with earrings and silk scarves, glitching in the sputtering Wi-Fi, exclaiming, Oh, honey, I can't believe you've never been to New York. And then, Oh, my God, your mom and I had such adventures when we were your age. Because you got to travel, you got to live, you know? And Kate didn't know, didn't know what live meant in this context. She suspected, though, that it meant something like you'd see on a Pepsi commercial, jumping into a waterfall in your underwear, piling into an open-top car to the beach, 
that sort of thing. But she'd said, absolutely, into the screen, like she knew, like, yeah, she totally knew, as though she were the kind of person who was up for it and down for it, the kind of person who wouldn't be troubled, for instance, about how those two semantically opposed phrases could have come to mean, in essence, the exact same thing. So as I was struggling to, uh, to get this right or to get it feeling resonant, if not right, I wondered whether this, this image of the, you know, the shut door and the paralysis and the keys that, you know, she didn't know whether they would work. I was sort of like, oh God, this is, <laughs> this is a metaphor for me being daunted by writing a novel. It's like I'm standing at this door and I don't know if the keys will work. And I'm worried that, you know, that, that it's going to feel like um, an ugly performance and, and kind of inauthentic. Um, so, yeah, I rewrote endlessly. Um, and I was sort of, I was sort of encouraged when I read somewhere that um, Rachel Kushner in The Flamethrowers had taken, I think, two years to, to write the opening pages. Um, and, you know, that's, it's, it was a hard lesson to learn as a journalist where I'd been in this mindset of, you know, you write it and you meet your deadline and you get paid and it goes to print and there's a sort of efficiency. And I had just had to accept that, that writing this novel, at least, was a deeply you know inefficient process and it was just going to take as long as it took um but yeah beginnings are hard <laughs> uh it took a long time where do you write i used to have to have my you know my uh, situation sort of perfectly orchestrated so i needed you know good light I need I couldn't write on a ground floor I had to be high up and I needed a comfortable chair and silence and you know preferably like a fancy little candle a light on my desk and I have become better at, at writing various places so I write mostly at home but also I'm um, in New York Public Library and in various cafes in my neighborhood or on planes or trains so to my relief I've become a bit better at writing anywhere. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? Um, for me, there, there is no getting away from it. Um, that's like saying getting away from, I don't know, consciousness or life or something. I sort of feel like I'm, I'm writing all the time, like even when I'm not, you know, typing at my laptop. Um, I think so much of writing is the time spent away from writing. So it's it's thinking and it's reading and seeing movies and talking to friends. So I can't imagine getting away from writing. That's, that's kind of, that's just how I live. Um, it's sort of the, the mode I'm in. And I, I don't even mean that in some sort of grand, you know, this is my passion way. It's almost more like a mode of consciousness. It's just um, how I am, I think. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? Um, I said earlier that uh, I was really prideful. Um, very grateful to two friends of mine, um, Cecilia and Osh, um, who I think at their suggestion, uh, we, we formed a sort of small writing group that has been a real joy. So the novel I'm working on now, I've been showing it, yeah, mostly to them, as well as my 
wonderful agent, of course, Mariah. And how have you dealt with rejection? Oh, badly. (laughs) I think a lot about the fact that James Salter's Light Years was absolutely panned in the New York Times. I think it was compared to Muzak. And, you know, when I read that review, it was it was both so painful. It was like someone had just kind of punched me in the heart because I felt the injustice of it. And I also know that uh, Salter didn't write for a long time and also just radically changed his style because of that review, which seems, I mean, his, you know, he was still wonderful, but it, it just seemed so sad that he'd be swayed by by those words. But, you know, sometimes I'm able to think of that and it's a very hopeful thing, um, which is to say that even a work of genius like Light Years can be completely misunderstood or sort of, you know, I guess I try and just hold on to the fact that, um, you know, literature is dealing with the subjective. That's that's what it is. And so naturally, it's going to be surrounded by the subjective too. And now I sort of feel like it's okay if, if there are people who who, you know, strongly dislike this. Like if I, I think it's more about holding oneself to account. And, you know, if you've truly done the hard work of trying to write with as much honesty as possible, then it should matter less when you are rejected. And it is a when because, you know, it happens to everyone. What is your favorite word? I'm very drawn to, it's kind of embarrassing having written a novel called Neon in Daylight. I should have got it out of my system, but I'm very drawn to to words um, about sort of light and heat. So my favorite word right now, as we, you know, are still in these dog days of winter longing for spring, is the word apricity, which means the light of the sun in winter, which is, you know, just pretty lovely. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Hermione Hobie, author of the novel Neon in Daylight. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.